0: And I've called this Living Stones and the Cornerstone. And the reason I chose that title is because um, I do have a sermon that's already on Sermon Audio that's called The Cornerstone and the Living Stones. And part of this sermon is part of that, as I mentioned, from 2010. And so I changed the title around so people won't get confused. This is just a one-off exhortation, and may the Lord use it. And in our passage today... We have two main statements that are made in verses 4 and 5. And it'll be Christ is the living stone, and we are living stones because He lives. And Christ is rejected by men, but ordained by God. And we may find ourselves also being rejected by the mainstream of men, but by God's grace, saved by God's grace, saved by God's glory. So we'll be looking at that. Peter turns to the Old Testament in verses 6 through 10 to prove his point. And we can infer from his scriptural proofs, number one, the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints are united in Christ, number two, but at the same time, the privileges that we have as New Testament saints are better than what the Old Testament saints even enjoyed in their day of signs and shadows. And third of all, in this day of salvation... And that's what the Bible means by today is the day of salvation. This is the age of salvation. There's a worldwide gospel, not one that's primarily confined to the nation of Israel, as uh, there was in the Old Testament, with occasional branches out into the Gentile world. Instead, it's a worldwide gospel with the people of God coming from the the scattered four places of the world and uh, coming together together as united people of God. So, with that little introduction, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10. through 10. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Talking, of course, him being Jesus Christ the Lord. But you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a cheap cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cheap cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, they stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so, sorry, uh, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Well, there's a lot of scripture there, and more verses than in the Old Testament than I'm going to quote. But we're going to look at a few, and some I'll just mention to you. You don't need to turn to this first one uh, because uh, it's in verse six. It's taken from Isaiah 28:16. Your outline's going to help you uh, to see, and you can look at later at those particular passages. And you'll notice when you get there, behold, I, it says, um, "Behold, I lay in Zion a cheap cornerstone, elect precious. He who believes on Him, will by no means be put to shame." You're going to find that last part will read differently in your Bibles, whatever version you happen to have. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, many versions will say, "Will not act in haste," or something like that. Uh, Peter takes the, the the reading from the Septuagint version. Uh, That uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and says, will not be put to shame, and that's exactly the way that Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 9, verse 32. There's another interesting word that I want to point out to you here in verse 6, and uh, that is the word uh, "tithemi." tithemi. The word means to place, appoint, ordain, purpose, or set forth. And so, behold, I'm laying in Zion. And Zion's often used in the New Testament church. I hope as you read through your Bible and your Old Testament, when you see Zion, don't just think of a a specific geographical area in Israel. Instead, be thinking of what God is doing and what God was going to do in bringing about the New Testament church. And God has purposely laid the church and Christ Jesus, of course, is the chief cornerstone of the church. But Christ serves a very different purpose for those that do not believe. Verse 7, he's precious to us, but to those who are disobedient or do not believe, okay, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You know, this comes from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. And the honor for Christians and the stumbling for the lost are both given to us as the Lord's doing. And if you read Psalm 118 later, actually in the devotional plan I have, I'll be reading Psalm 118 this week by God's grace. But um, the one that I use and the one we've given papers out that a few of you may be using, Peter is thinking about Psalm 118. As he writes this passage. So, whenever you read Psalm 118, I hope you'll read it with New Testament eyes. And I hope that you read all of your Old Testament with New Testament eyes, you know. But um, this verse, by the way, Psalm 118, 22 and 23, it's actually quoted five other times in the New Testament. So, this is a verse that uh, is obviously very much on the minds and hearts of the authors, the inspired authors of the New Testament as they bring forth Old Testament truth into the New Testament. And uh, I heard just this week, uh, there's a little bit of a side here, um, a preacher was asked, um, uh, how come God hardened Pharaoh's heart? And the preacher says, oh, God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart. No, he didn't. He didn't harden. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The Bible says Pharaoh's heart grew hard. But you know what? Look it up. Don't look it up now. (laughs) Look it up in Exodus 4. Before Moses got to Egypt, God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will not hear you. But it says. So this preacher denied it all the way through and said... um, no, it, it's free will. You know, it's all free will. And the truth of the matter is, all of our hearts are hard before the Lord Jesus Christ comes and um, and uh, regenerates those stony hearts and makes them living and makes them look to Christ. That's true for all of us before we're converted. But there are there are times of judicial hardening, you know. And yet, yeah, he hardened his own heart. Yes, he did. His heart grew hard. Yes, it did. And God hardened his heart. And why? Romans 9 tells us okay, so that he could make Pharaoh a showcase and a warning to those that would come later. Look it up in Romans 9. Look it up in Exodus 4. Okay. That was free. We'll, we'll go on here. Okay. So in verse let's, we finish that one. Five other times in the New Testament talks about that. you know. And then as we go to verse 8 uh, we see that taken from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he gives the inspired commentary upon this. You know, The action, they stumble, talking about the lost. The immediate reason for the stumbling is they disobey the word. Okay? And the ultimate reason for the stumbling, which they were destined to do. And uh, the Greek word translated destined is a form of tithymiae which we've already saw applied to Christ as the one ordained by God. So uh, that, that's what we have here. There's the commentary below that, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble, here's the reason, the immediate reason, being disobedient to the word, and then the ultimate reason to which they were appointed. And, and you can rest assured, Christian friends, that without the opening of the heart by, by God himself, we will continue to be Christ rejecters, Or we'll stumble over him in a different way. We'll see Christ for someone that he's not. And we will not see him as the exalted, great, God-ordained cornerstone. Well, you know, we we can go on a little bit more. There's There's actually more that we could say about that. But I'm going to take us to the book of Hosea. So verse number 10, let's read verse 10 again. And then go to it in, um, in to the book of Hosea. You start turning to Hosea if you want to while I read to you. Um, Hosea chapter 1. While I read to you verse 10. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter is thinking about this incident that God did. Very unusual incident again. Don't be surprised that we find unusual things in the Bible, okay? Because the Bible's a book. It's a book of miracles. It's a book of, of supernatural, spiritual occurrences. Uh, the, a lot of things that we see in the Bible, we wouldn't expect to see them happen every day. How often does the Red Sea open up, you know? And well, there's a time where something like that happened, and the Jordan River opened up. There's another time that something like that happened, and Elijah threw his cloak down, And again, that river stream opened up. So there's three. Does it happen every day? No, that doesn't happen every day. But it happens when God desires for it to happen. And it happens when it needs to happen. Or it happens to show forth His power and His glory. So that's what we have to think about miracles that way. Uh, A miracle uh, isn't something that happens all of the time. Otherwise it would be a natural occurrence. Okay. A miracle is something that God does, supernaturally, for reasons. And you can always find the reason. Well, here isn't really a miracle, okay? We're not looking at a miracle. Now, in Hosea, we're looking at an unusual calling, something that normally would not happen, but God ordained and God caused to happen here. In fact, um, we're, as we look back, let me just go through this quickly here. Um, Look at verse 2 of Hosea 1. Verse 1 tells us the time frame where this happened. Verse 2 says, When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. Now, that's a rough way to start your ministry, right? Rough way there, okay. Basically, probably the the wife that he takes, and uh, she's unfortunately named Gomer. Okay, (laughs) to us that's Gomer Pyle. (laughs) Not the only Gomer I know of. But she's unfortunately named Gomer. She's probably a a temple prostitute, to tell you the truth. That's probably what she was. So look at verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter, and gives the name, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said, Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I'll avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu, and bring to an end the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I'll break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And Jezreel was a, a geographic location, and Jehu was a king, and the king Jehu was commissioned to wipe out the house of Ahab. So if you know your old Testament, you've got some idea. Of what we're talking about. Ahab, probably the most wicked king that there ever was in Israel. And, um, uh, you know, Jehu was commissioned by the Lord to wipe him out, and he did that in the Valley of Jezreel. There were many other battle- battles fought in the Valley of Jezreel. And um, some would, would think uh, that there's a relation to Armageddon here. We'll wait until we're back in our Revelation series and deal with that. Uh, but, but Megiddo, Armageddon, all of that, Jezreel, uh, there's, there's some relationships there. And I think they're, sp- they're spiritual, symbolic relationships. But here's a reality. Israel was going to go into captivity, name your son Jezreel. By all accounts, it was his son, his legitimate son, and, uh, and was named prophetically as a sign. Verse 6, and she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Rama, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by battle, nor by horsemen. So here's Lo-Rama, which means has received no compassion. And this is what Peter's alluding to in verse 10, who have not received mercy, but have now received mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Okay, so we see that allusion there. And I think Hosea in his mind wondered whether this was really his child or not. And the Bible doesn't make it clear, but there was good reason to doubt that this was really his daughter. Now, when she had weaned Lo Rama, she conceived and bore a son. And God said, Call his name Lo Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. So there's the great difficulty there, you know. Now he knows that this is not his son, and he's told to name him not my people. And that's what takes us. That's what Peter's referring to. This um, tragedy we can speak of. This terrible thing that befell the prophet. This heartbreaking thing. You know, heartbreaking things do befall us as Christians. Those that know the Lord, we, we're not spared from heartbreak. He was commissioned to be a living example. A heartbreaking example. You know, So, a son, a daughter, another son, you know. But then we read on a little bit further, and for time, I'm going to to go down to verse chapter two, verse one. You know, say to your brethren, my people, and your sisters, mercy is shown. And then chapter two, verse twenty-three. You can read the whole account later, of course. Um, it, it's very good here, and um, as we oh, well, let's just go to verse twenty-two. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I'll say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. So the names are given, they're given for a reason, but there's a prophetic reason here. Peter understands that. Peter picks up on that. Back to 1 Peter again. Verse 9 of chapter 2, "...you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light." Talking about Christians who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have obtained mercy." Peter, no doubt, is thinking about his fellow kinsmen in the flesh, stumbling over Christ, refusing to repent and believe, fulfilling the very destiny ordained by God. And so he goes back to Hosea, along with those other scriptures we read, a painful object lesson that still stands today. You know what? Hosea that had a tough life. Many people have tough lives. He had a tough life, he had a tough commission. But he went and bought her back. I didn't read that part, but he bought her back. And brought her back into his home. Uh, A picture of redemption there. Okay, so that's where we have from the Old Testament there. Now, we're going to deal with verses 4 and 5 the rest of the time here. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And I think, humanly speaking, God uses the authors of of Scripture and their own personality and their own thoughts and their own ideas. Of course, they're divinely inspired by God, but He uses their personalities. And notice how Peter, who actually was very, very much... um, in a transition here, he's very much thinking about um, things in a very physical way in his earlier years. By the time we get to Acts chapter 2, he's preaching a tremendous gospel message at the day of Pentecost, and understanding the Old Testament, uh, because God had opened his eyes and opened his understanding. And here he just keeps on emphasizing spiritual house, spiritual sacrifices, and um, that's really the contrast uh, what was going to pass away. And the contrast we make here between believers and non-believers is we come to Him and they reject Him. A Christian's one who's come to Jesus. The gospel goes forth. Lost people can hear the gospel. Lost people respond to the gospel and become Christians. But, you know, there's qualifications to every gospel invitation. Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Why would you come to Christ if you were satisfied with the way things are? You are content with the world. You love the world and and you care about the world. And the world has its attraction to you. Why would you come to Christ? No, he calls the weary. He calls the heavy laden. He calls those that realize their sin. Because, as one of our ladies eloquently said at the ladies' breakfast, God only saves sinners. It's true. That's all that he saves. God only saves sinners. I don't know where she heard that. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Second of all, to us, he is precious. To them, he is not. We love him because he first loved us. And to a true Christian, nothing means more to you than Christ. You know, I'm sure this happened. But it's an an old story, and it... um, it's circulated around in different ways, but uh, the Sunday school teacher uh, is trying to get her class to, to memorize Psalm 23, so she says, who can who can quote Psalm 23 for me, the 23rd Psalm? And a little girl raises her hand, and she says, the Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. Okay, <laughs> very, very true, not exactly word for word correct. But very, very true. The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. And He is all that we want. And and fellow Christians, you understand that if you have Christ, you have everything. And if you don't have Christ, you really have nothing. The lost don't understand that. They can't. They trip over Him. He's like the stone in the road that causes them to stumble, or maybe to make it a little more contemporary and down to where I've been living, um, like a nail in their tire. We keep having mysterious nails show up. I think they're coming off the roof and blowing off the roof from time to time um, from I I don't know how, I don't know where, but, um, you know, makes your tire go flat and uh, we don't, don't arrive at our desired destination. They keep going, don't worry, they keep going into the front parking lot in front of my house there. That's where they've been going. So now I have to look every day. I look. Usually don't find a nail. Occasionally find a nail. So... We need to be careful. Well, people, we avoid nails if we can. And people wouldn't say, look, there's a whole box of nails that's been thrown on the freeway. Let's drive over them and see what happens. You You wouldn't do that, you know. And you avoid a rock that's going to make you stumble and fall. Lost men avoid Jesus Christ because he is not precious to them, he's anything but precious. To us who believe, he's precious. Third thing, and I'll just say this pretty much without comment. We'll never be put to shame. They'll suffer eternal shame. And of course, we're talking about eternal damnation. Fourth of all, we've obtained mercy. They have not obtained mercy. Remember blind Bartimaeus? Okay? Blind Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was coming. He stations himself. He can't see Jesus. He's blind. But he cries out, Jesus, the Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd says, be quiet, be quiet. you know. And the disciples that are going ahead are even saying, don't bother the Master. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And he was. He was on his way to Jerusalem to give his life for his people. That's what he was doing. Jesus, the Son of David, have mercy on me. What does Jesus do? He stops in his tracks and says to Bartimaeus, what would you have me to do? Lord that I could receive my sight. And he did. That's what Jesus did for him. The crowd didn't care to help Bartimaeus. The disciples even refused to pay him attention. But when Jesus heard him, he stopped dead in his tracks and called for Bartimaeus to come to him. Think about that. He's on his way to the most important, excruciating mission, in all of history. And he has time for Bartimaeus. Another one saved. Another one plucked from like a branch from the burning to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he came. It's mercy. And Christian friend, you have found mercy. You've obtained mercy because of God's grace. And, and we had communion at the 10 o'clock hour. And, and we come to the Lord's table because of grace and mercy mercy. And we know what it's like to live in the light of the glory of God as revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a blessing, Christian friend. That's a blessing. Fifth of all, you know, we're not a people, but now are a people. We're a covenant people. And the lost are not a people. You so say, yeah, they are people. Well, of course they're people. They're made in the image of God you know. But we're a chosen generation, verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. All of that is covenantal language that ties in with the Old Testament. The lost are not a people in a covenantal sense. They can have a confederacy. They can join together. They can even join together to fight against the Lord. But what does it say in Proverbs? It says, "Though hand join in hand, they will not go unpunished. There's no confederacy they could make that in any way could fight against God. You know? They don't have a covenantal relationship with God. We can think of them as the scattered ones. But aren't you glad that from the scattered ones, Jesus plucks and plucks and plucks and plucks his own from the scattered ones. And that's a great blessing. And my friend, Christian friend, that was you and that was I. And we were plucked by God, by his grace and by his mercy. Our hearts were changed. And because of the grace of God, we're one family in God. We can legitimately call each other brothers and sisters. And I was reminded again when I was in Bonham that even though I only knew a few of those people by name, and some of the people I did know that were there, but you know, for most of the people, I just didn't know them and hadn't even talked to them. But we were brothers and we were sisters, and there was that kinship that was already there, established. You know, we're one family, and we can gather around a table like a family does and eat together like a family does. And the feast that He gives Him, uh, gives us is His body and His blood, figuratively speaking. And it was a privilege to be with, with, in Bonham when they had their first Lord's Supper as a constituted church and uh, partaking that with them, uh, they were already partaking in the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. As, our, as we were the overseers, we, we told them that they could as they were planting that church. But, um, you know, it was great. It was great. Uh, Pastor Jeff made a, a real point to say this is our first Lord's Supper as a local body of believers. And it was a blessing. Now I'll change gears just a little bit here. The importance of a cornerstone. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You know, the cornerstone is the first and most important stone. If the cornerstone is off, the building's going to be off. Okay? You know that. I, I don't build buildings, don't know anything about building buildings. But I have laid tile, those little 12 by 12 sticky tiles, you know. And you better get that first one right. <laughs> you get that first one wrong and it's going to get worse and worse as you go. You know? You've got to get that exactly right. Well, the cornerstone's that way too. If you don't get it right, the building is going to suffer. And Jesus Christ is our cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. He's the head of the church. And He's revealed to us by the apostolic Word of God, written by the apostles and those ordained by God. He's been appointed to this position by God. He's elect by God. He's precious to God. To those of us who believe He's precious, He's worthy of all of our faith and trust. And every natural religion has a cornerstone. Just think about it. The Roman Catholic Church um, sets herself up as the cornerstone in her traditions and and uh, the, the interpretation of the scriptures uh, by by her authorities become the, the cornerstone. The Mormons have Joseph Smith, of course. The JWs have the Watchtower Society. Muslims have Muhammad. Secularists have a cornerstone too. You know what the secularist cornerstone is? Science. Science, and and much of it is science, falsely so-called. You know. And even when they have to change, they're science. They never apologize and say, "Well, wow, we were wrong. I guess God had it right all along. They never say that. They just move on as though, okay, look how smart we are. We discovered something new, something different. New Age philosophers. We have a lot of New Age people around nowadays. You know, It's something that uh, has happened in the last 30 to 40 years from Eastern religion and such like that. Uh, and there's, there's certain New Age philosophers that have a cornerstone. You know what their cornerstone is? themselves. They're their own cornerstone as they look in deep within and, and figure things out and, and meditate. and Okay. Every religion has a cornerstone. The only solid cornerstone is Jesus Christ, the Lord, as revealed in the Word of God. And Jesus Christ is the living cornerstone, according to verse number 4. Now, now think about that. A living Cornerstone. The last thing you would ever think about when you think about a stone is life. Okay. You don't think about life. You might think about strength. You might think about security. You might think about weight and weightiness. You might think of steadfastness like a rock. Well, Christ is all those things. But he's the living cornerstone. And the, the stone that's used there is lithos, and Alethas is a dressed stone. Okay. It's uh, the kind of stone that comes from a quarry. And Solomon formed the foundation of the temple with these kinds of stones. But the temple was just a building. And the temple wouldn't stand forever. In fact, that temple isn't standing at all right now. That temple's gone. It was destroyed in, in the Babylonian captivity. It was rebuilt and then it was built, and then it was built, and then it became a, a, mag- a majestic complex, a huge place, and it was destroyed again in 70 A.D. Okay? And it has not been rebuilt. You know why it hasn't been rebuilt? Think about it. Why hasn't it been rebuilt? Because it doesn't need to be rebuilt. God has a temple. The, the true temple in heaven... And then his spiritual temple on earth, which is the church. And Christians living stones themselves because he lives. You know, The church is spiritual. It's not located in one particular place. You don't have to go to any one place on this earth. In fact, if you, if you have any other vacations coming up this summer, you should be able to find a group of God's people that you could worship with on the Lord's Day even while you're on vacation, because God's been very gracious to us that way, you know. And all together, all of these individual congregations make up, along with those that have gone before Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, of the Church of the Living God. So through him, we're living stones, you know. I got a little ahead of myself there, but that's okay. Talking about the cornerstone, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, And we are living stones that are put in with him to build up. We see the full revelation in the New Testament of how God wants his people to interact with one another. So much so the body of Christ is referred, or actually the church is referred to as the body of Christ. Many times. The Old Testament temple was destroyed. Not one stone was left upon another. It was complete and utter desolation. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. The church can never be conquered. The church can never be overthrown. The church can never be burned down. Oh, this building could be burned down. It's made out of metal. it would be hard, but it could be done. You know? mm-hmm. this, this church could be built down. But the church of the living God can never be destroyed. You know, Christianity is corporate, is what I'm trying to say. The New Testament doesn't know anything about a churchless Christianity. The New Testament nowhere talks about Christians refusing to assemble together or refusing to join together into a coherent body. just doesn't know anything like that. What happens every place the apostles go? They plant churches. To whom does Paul write his epistles? Uh, well, they're written to churches. You say, well, I know some that are not. Um, you know, how about Philemon? The church met in his house. Well, how about 1st and 2nd Timothy? Well, obviously, qualifications uh, of an elder and the word of Paul to his young disciple Timothy of how he's to behave himself in the church of the living God. And uh, I think you can see my drift here. So Titus, yeah, written to churches too, of course. And and, and Brother Barry, uh, you talked about Romans and James today and did very well, thank you. Written to the scattered Jews. And what do those scattered Jews do? They went to churches where they heard James read. And that's the way God's planned it. And that's the way it still has been. And for nigh under 2,000 years, it has been that way. So it's true there's no perfect church on this earth. Um, The church cannot be perfect because it's made up of sinners, you know but sinners saved by grace. So we need to be careful and not simply criticize the church because what good are we if we're spectators talking about how bad everything is? We need to ask ourselves, are we part of the church? Are we living stones? Have we been saved by the grace of God? And if that answer is yes, we should plunge in with all of our might to be the very best living stones we can be in the place where God has us to be. And so I'll exhort you, like I exhorted the brethren in Bonham. You know, be a part of this local church. Be a part of making this church better. Those of you that are part of this church, do what you can to be an effective living stone, resting upon the sure foundation of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Not everyone's the same. God doesn't want us all to be the same, and not everyone will do the same things. He didn't say we were bricks all of uniform size and shape exactly alike. You know, a brick building has sameness and symmetry um, unless the builder decides to to go otherwise with it. But a stone building, that goes together more like a puzzle, doesn't it? You know, And you can see on Archibald Avenue, there's an old stone church that's up there. And as you examine it, I don't think they can use it anymore because of structural problems. But as you look at that, you can see they, they put that together. And you've seen other stone buildings, too. that that go together that way, of a different size. And part of the strength of a stone building is its diversity in the size of the stones. And I say that because there are people that you can reach that few others in this congregation could reach. And there are people you can help, and you're uniquely qualified to do that if you try. So let me conclude by saying this. He's the cornerstone. He's the living stone. Because He lives, we live. The church in heaven is made up of all true believers from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We've seen that in the book of Revelation. We'll see it again. The innumerable host. But the local church is made up of believers in a particular area. The Bible tells us that. To the church in Corinth. To the church in Philippi. To the church in Thessalonica, to the church in Ontario. Okay, well, that's not in the Bible. Well, we got all the Bible, right? It all belongs to us, and we can be privileged to, to have that. That's something Philippi didn't have. They didn't have all the Bible, those, those Christians to whom Paul wrote. You know, they didn't have all the Bible yet. It would be a while before they had the full revelation of God as it finishes off with the book of Revelation. So I challenge you to be a living, active, and vital part of this local church to the glory of God and the good of your soul. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the cornerstone, Jesus Christ the Lord. To him be all the glory, to him be all the honor. And we know it's the work of the Spirit, to bring us into Christ, to redeem us, to change our stony hearts and make them to be hearts of flesh, to make us willing to come to Christ. But until that happens, we know that we'll flee. We know that we'll run. We know we'll go the other way. Lord, I pray that you'd use the word of God, and you promised that you would use the word of God to convert sinners. As the sound of the word goes forth, Lord, that's how people come to Christ. And so we thank you for that. And Lord, it's a masterful plan. It's been going on for 2,000 years in this particular full gospel New Testament age. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the work of the Spirit to lead us to Christ. And Christ, of course, the glory of the Father. We thank you, Father, for what you have done. And we thank you for being a part of it. And if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray, Father, that you would break down that stony heart and that you would make them living stones to join with us, not only here in this local church and not only in heaven until you come, but with you for all eternity, to the glory of God. And we would give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.